Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Let us get into a story that it's back in the news and there are, I'm not going to say there are no other stories that generate the kind of response this one does, but there are few. There are few issues in this city that get people as fired up on one side or the other as this one. And this particular story, especially it being in budget season, boy, uh, people really on board or really angry about this. It's the fact that Hamilton is pitching as part of the budget this year, $60 million to go to bike lanes. A lot of people saying, wait a second, what about housing? What about encampments? What about this? What about that? Bike lanes? Really? Let me bring in John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Always love having John on. John, how are you today? Just great, Scott. Thanks. Well, you would have fully expected that when council brings forward a number like $60 million for bike lanes, the response was going to be what it is, correct? Yeah, it's it's pretty predictable. And, um, you know... to be honest, if you if you really look at it, Scott, it's it's not so much the amount of money in this sense that because it is a capital expenditure, it works out to about three or four million a year um, is what it's actually going to look like on a on a tax bill. But I, I just think it kind of points to where this council's priorities are. And they, you know, it it just sends out a bad message. The same week that you're actually sitting down and going through the budget to uh, release a proposal like this, I looked through the uh, capital budget for for the coming year, the proposed capital budget, and I don't see these bike lanes there. So uh, I'm, I'm there's suggesting they're going to spend about six million of it this year, in this coming year. But it's, you know, we already had a bike lane plan. I mean, the, the staff had put together a bike lane plan, uh, previous councils had approved it. What this is, is an acceleration. Somebody on council said, hey, that's not fast enough. We're, we're not building the lanes fast enough. So let's, let's uh, speed it up. Uh, let, let's really speed it up. And, and that's kind of what we're getting now. So, you know, uh, the, the public response is, is predictable. They're, they're a little jumpy about this budget as it is. And here's another issue. One of the things that I hear a lot, and you probably do too, I hear this a lot though, is there are people who I, I'm assuming are not cyclists, because if they were, they wouldn't say this, who say, you know what, the cycling lobby in this city is just a really successful, not very big, but a very successful lobby group that has managed to grab the ear of council. And as a result, has an unbalanced or, or an exaggerated hearing with this council. Is that true? Well, it's kind of my sense. I think I said to you in a previous conversation that they seem to be the most self-absorbed group uh, possible. I mean, they just seem to be oblivious to anything else that's going on in the community. And, um, you know, and I, I, I certainly don't have any empirical evidence here, but uh, I, I keep getting emails from people that say, I ride a bike, I'm on the bike lanes, I don't see anybody else. So utilization, it'd be nice to have some, some, there, there may be numbers out there. I haven't quite frankly bothered to see if there are, but, um, you know, it, it seems like a, a fair amount of expense and a fair amount of attention and absorption 
um, for something that, um, frankly, most people aren't using and almost nobody's using this time of year. Well, it, it does seem like it, to me, it seems like it's more than whether or not you ride a bicycle. This somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how, this seems like it almost boils down to a philosophical view of your view of urban life. That, that if you, if you don't like cars necessarily, even if you don't ride bikes, this is way better. Let's just put lots of bike lanes because we want to get cars off the road. And I, I mean, there are people who ride in the bike lanes. I'm not disputing that, but it, it seems like it's more than just whether or not we have lanes. It seems like it's a deeper philosophical thing. Maybe if we see more bikes and we all ride more bikes, we'll feel like we're Amsterdam. We can pretend. You mentioned Amsterdam. Thank you for doing that. Because as I said, that seems to be the utopia that, that some people want us to be like the Netherlands where everybody rides bikes everywhere. I look at this and I just don't see that we can become that. Our geography is just very different. Well, not only the geography, but, uh, look at Amsterdam and look at downtown Hamilton. I mean, you know, you can, you could put bike lanes all over, uh, Hamilton, and uh, we can't disguise the fact that uh, this city is really falling apart physically. I know part of that is waiting for the LRT, but um, the LRT is only going to be on King Street. It's not going to be on, uh, you know, Cannon Street and Barton Street and all these other east-west, north-south streets. Um, really, it's, it's getting quite depressing when, when you see the state of the infrastructure in this city. Uh, all of which seems to be put on hold and until uh, and if ever this LRT project gets going. So, you know, Amsterdam is a charming city. Uh, I, I've been there. I, I think it's a, a great place. And one thing that always confused me about Amsterdam, you, you, you go by any large public facility and, and there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of bikes parked outside. And they all look exactly the same. So I've never figured out how people yeah. find their bike. It's like trying to find your umbrella. Well, let me read you uh, one line from, this is an online Dutch magazine. It's a story, it's a magazine about things that are Dutch. Uh, the Netherlands is often called a cycling paradise. Despite this, there are 53 different ways you can get fined while biking in the Netherlands. This is the next question I would have, John. If we are going to spend all this money on bike lanes, every time we talk to someone who is in the cycling community and we say, but should there then be enforcement? And we always get, oh, come on. Uh, in, in the Netherlands, you can get charged and do get charged cycling without lights or reflectors, cycling under the influence, not indicating what direction you're going to turn, not having a bell, texting while cycling, not following traffic rules. If we're going to begin expanding all of our bike lanes, should we also be expanding our enforcement of cyclists? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because Frank Bergen, our police chief, was up in front of council today defending his budget. And I'm sure if you said to Frank, uh, now you, we really need to crack down on, on all the bike violations, um, he'd come back to you with a, with a proposal that would probably involve hiring another 30 or 40 officers. So uh, enforcement, uh, you're now getting into policing and uh, the point he made uh, to council today was that they only respond to about two thirds of the calls they get. They they prioritize everything uh, based on severity of the situation. And, and he freely admitted that there's about one third 
of the calls they get. They're, they're at the bottom end of the scale. They're my cat's in a tree kind of mm. thing. Um, and, and they just simply do not get to them. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's get back to this then, because we've got the $60 million thing and and that number is, I think what gets people paying attention and either really excited or really cranky one or the other. And, and to be fair, you know, I, much of what we've talked about has not been wildly positive to bike lanes, even as you and I are chatting, that's fine. Uh, but I look at this and the one thing I do wonder, John, is even though, as you say, it's only a few million dollars a year, each year. We, we talked about the same thing with a poet. We talked about the same thing with some other things in the city. It's not an enormous amount of money, but it seems to be about the impression or the message that it's sending. And I don't know, is there value in a message or should we say, ah, forget the message. If it's not a lot of money, who cares? No, I don't, I don't think we can say that because the, the, the flip side of, of what I had said earlier, that it only amounts to three or 4 million a year is what could we buy with $60 million in a capital sense that, that might be uh, uh, of equal or even, even more value? And, and I don't know what that is, but $60 million, even with inflation, will still buy you something pretty substantial and possibly buy something that, that might have more impact uh, in the community. I, so, I, you know, yeah. two ways of looking at the money. I would be very interested and I, I know we're not going to, the city's not going to give us this opportunity, but you mentioned that the police chief was up presenting the request for his budget today. And there are some counselors that are very clearly, very not in favor. I, I don't even know if I want to say very opposed, but not in favor. And, you know, I wonder if you asked the average citizen of this city though, would you prefer to put millions of dollars into policing, or would you prefer to put millions of dollars into bike lanes? I, I truly, and I don't even know the answer. I wonder what, how that would break down. I think I know, but I'm not positive. Well, based on the feedback that both of us have seen to the bike lane thing, I think, I think, you know, the answer. I suspect the uh, answer. Yes. And, and the police, uh, he actually, uh, you know, back to the, the, the police budget, he actually got a fairly friendly response. Uh, you know, Cameron Kretsch, uh, who, as you know, a, a well-documented history of uh, not being in favor of the police. He he had some some very sharp questions, but they they got a pretty good response. And you know, the police budget increase is one percent less than council's increase. So you know, who's spending too much money? In the next, well, in the next week, sometime when next time we talk to you, I, I do want to talk about that because that is one of the other things that the council is about to get into the deep water with its budget. And, you know, uh, you went through it, I went through it and many departments, the increases that are being sought are, I mean, the mayor's office is 8.7% and there's other ones that are 11% or six. Uh, I, it's, it's fascinating to me that at a time of such financial strain that every department was not given an instruction to come back at 4% or 5% or 3% or something, or maybe they were and ignored it, but it just, it seems like there's not really Maybe council will do it, but it doesn't seem like there's been a great effort to really demand that everybody tighten up. I agree. I, I think this this budget is going to be a real a real test of this council, and you're starting to see just in comments around the table little little cracks in if there was solidarity, 
on on the sort of tax and spend approach uh, that, that maybe some people are wavering. I think they are hearing from constituents uh, much more than than we perhaps uh, really realize. And so I think uh, it's going to be a difficult budget, but we'll find out whether there's any resolve to uh, think about affordability or not. And uh, th- I think this council will be very much judged on that. Well, and, and we got to go, but it won't just be, I don't think, I think you're correct, uh, but it won't just be this council. I think that there is going to be more of a breakdown on who on council is doing it, because I think this council is going to be very split on whether to spend or whether to not spend. And I think people are going to see that very clearly if they're watching. Yes, I, th- I agree completely. There, There is a split on council now, and I think it's going to get wider. That is John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Always love having you on, John. Thanks for this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Canadian government has announced that it is going to reduce the number of new international student permits by a third next year and for two years, going to bring down the number of foreign students who can come here to study. Now, there's a number of reasons this is the case. We can go through a bunch of them. Uh, Some people point to housing and say, you know, all these students are here temporarily and they rent places and it makes it harder. It's a, it's a tax, it's a, not a tax, it's a, a strain on the housing supply. Um, you know, others talk about students who come here and then stay. There's all kinds of things, but the federal government is now saying, yeah, we, we, we have to do something about this. And they're pointing largely at the level of temporary residence in Canada. I want to bring in Moisha Launder, who's a senior economics lecturer with Concordia University. Uh, thanks for doing this today. Always a pleasure. Is this a good plan or is this scapegoating foreign students as the cause of our problems with housing and some other things? Yeah, it's scapegoating. Uh, You asked if it's a good plan. I would just say it's a plan. Okay. So I think that the federal government was essentially bullied into doing something. And so I think they just picked the easiest target and said, all right, let's do this is the reason. I'm kind of reminded of... Uh, there's a great Simpsons episode where Mo was just sitting there saying, I knew it was the immigrants. I just knew it was them. It, it's kind of that sort of thing that, uh, who do I blame for this? Well, let's go after them. Anytime you can get a university lecturer to come on and quote the Simpsons, you know that your show is going well. So, uh, you know, that <laughs> off to a good start. No, it like, it does seem like this is the group that is going to if not put up the least fuss, we're going to hear the least about it because they're not full-time residents. They're not immigrants per se. So this is one thing we can do and there's not going to be a ton of blowback from the people affected. And that's exactly it. And that even if there is a path to citizenship for them or to staying permanently, uh, the number of years that would take, uh, this government could say then, well, they're not even going to get us at the next election, right? If you start targeting uh, different groups that may or may not be more affected or affecting the situation, uh, then they do run the risk of alienating a generation of people that that might vote for them. So uh, I, 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 I'm disappointed uh, that this is the solution that they came up with. But that said, uh, other than just shrugging and saying, this is something that we as Canadians have to figure out, uh, you know, they're kind of backed in, into that corner. Is, is there, uh, I mean, in, in university towns though, I would think that there is some issue here. 
Uh, and, and, you know, again, not to scapegoat, but in, in places that are heavily university towns, I would assume that a lot of the housing is taken by students and, and that's going to necessarily mean in some cases, international students. Is there in those cities, in those towns, is there a case to be made for this? Well, you know, one of the things is that a lot of university towns, and of course you're in one of them, uh, how much has student housing actually been built? Mm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm reminded having grown up in London, uh, Western used to house most of the student population in university built dorms. What most universities are finding though, is that, uh, in order to kind of balance last year's books, you need to admit more students this year. And of course, if you can admit foreign students that pay triple tuition, as opposed to domestic students who just pay regular tuition, uh, it's almost it's almost like a Ponzi scheme uh, that seems to be going on here. But what the universities have realized is, why should we be responsible for building all of the temporary student housing that's going to house all of these students? Let's just cut them loose into the local neighborhoods and the surrounding uh, towns and make it their problem. Funny. And so yeah. again, this is where the, the federal government is saying, wait, how did this land on our lap? Uh, the idea of bringing in foreign students itself is not a problem. It's that the local universities are not working with the, the cities that host them to make sure that this doesn't spill over into the non-student population and become their problem. Funny you mentioned about the impact on, <clears throat> excuse me, on universities themselves, because uh, the same day this story comes out, there's a piece in the Hamilton Spectator talking about uh, finances of a lot of universities in Ontario and specifically looking at McMaster's finances. And let me read you two paragraphs, very short paragraphs from the story. Revenue from tuition grew by 8.4% to a total of 445.8 million in 2022-23, quote, solely due to increased international enrollment and international tuition rate increases. The report reads, domestic enrollment and both undergraduate and graduate levels was virtually flat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Universities, this is the, this is almost now the thing they need. They've become almost addicted to foreign student revenues. They absolutely have. And for any university, wherever you are, so whether you're talking Mac, whether you're talking Western, Queens uh, has also been saying they're in some financial difficulty. Uh, you know, your biggest two expenses are facilities and faculty. And so now what you've got is that faculty in general are on average a little healthier than the general population. They live a little longer. Uh, but now that living a little longer is living into their 80s, 90s, and sometimes hitting the century mark. So when you're making these big pension obligations, not only are you paying them six figures uh, for their teaching lives, but you're also promising them big fat money for all of the years that they spend retired. The facilities, it's now an arms race to make sure that you have the cutting edge engineering lab, science lab, medical facilities, uh, even in the humanities where you could work with, say, a, a blackboard and maybe 19th century technology, even there, it's a race to try and compete to uh, the globalization of education that you got to make sure that everybody has the right bells and whistles. So, you know, even their facilities are, are becoming extremely costly. And so, yeah, it, you only have so many local residents, our, our domestic population is barely growing. And the reason why Canada is growing so quickly is because we have the open doors. And so, of course, uh, it just makes sense then you start creating this two-tier pricing. Uh, it's only a matter of time, too, before you start creating a third tier where you say, and out-of-province students are also going to pay a much larger amount. Mm. 
for coming into the province and maybe taking off. It's, it's what Quebec's doing right now, although they're doing it for language purposes. So are, are universities going to look at this then, do you think, and say, you know what, we've got to wean ourselves off this because times are changing, or is it going to go more the way you just described where now we are really, McMaster looks at this and goes, we are in death competition with Western and with everyone else to lure the students here. Is it going to be a, let's pull back, or is it going to be a full frontal assault now to get those foreign students? Yeah, it, it's the full frontal assault, because if you try to cut back, right, if you try and cut your expenses, how are you going to do that? By selling off buildings, by trying to, uh, you know, through attrition, eliminate your faculty complement, that, that type of thing is going to prompt a severe response, not just from students who are not going to like the idea that they now have second-rate facilities, larger class sizes, less faculty around to supervise their research and, and help them uh, get the job skills they need. But uh, the, the faculty themselves, of course, are going to protest saying, wait a second, uh, you know, uh, with a PhD, that that means mobility. And so now education is one of those places where, you know, I don't have to stay in Canada, I can go to the US, I can go to Europe, I can go to Australia. And so if you're not going to offer me those best facilities, uh, I, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach or somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> and so you can't afford to to lose your faculty because that's a lot of what allows that international reputation to build for Mac or all of the other universities. So no, the, the only way that you can do it now is you've got to find ways to squeeze every last dollar out of every last student you can. And if the easiest way to do it is to just say, show me your passport, uh, they're going to keep doing it. And you're right. They have become addicted. And I think the addiction is just going to get worse. Well, and, and, you know, tuitions are controlled somewhat here in Ontario, but could we then see universities look for other ways to make up for this user fees on students or higher fees for on-campus housing, or will they look for things that are going to fill that gap if the, if the international student numbers are down? Absolutely. And, and they're going to petition the provincial government. You know, we, we've seen that there are jurisdictions where you, you press hard enough. The, the provincial government understands that it's in their best interest, too, to start allowing universities to raise tuition beyond certain levels, because the, the real cost of an education is substantially beyond what students are paying anyway. So even with the triple tuition that international students are paying, they're still not paying the full cost of their tuition. So the, the provincial government's going to recognize, too, that they've got a ticking time bomb on their hands, that the more students that are coming in to pay for the facilities and faculty, the more of a subsidy that they're having to hand over. Uh, they'd rather offload some of that subsidy because I don't think there's a tax base there that can keep financing it. Uh, and so at some point, especially in Ontario, where you've got what, 20, 25 universities, uh, you don't want them going belly up the way some of the ones in, in Northern Ontario uh, are, are really worried about, especially as the North uh, kind of empties out and people move down to, to Toronto and the GTA. Uh, we can't do better than having someone come on and quote both the Simpsons and LeBron James uh, in one segment, but uh, Moshe Lander, really appreciate doing the senior economics lecture with Concordia University. I should give you another minute to come up with one more obscure reference, but you know what, next time. Uh, always appreciate coming on and doing this. Thank you. I'll up the bar for next time. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a man who, uh, well, it's not a soft drink he's drinking. He's, uh, he's working through a Gatorade here, but, uh, you know, he's, a, he's an athlete. He's got to keep that body finely tuned. Uh, he is the owner and operator of ComChoice Realty and the Dundas Real McCoys and... Apparently, according to his shirt, a fan of the Hamilton Steelers and uh, just a man about town. Don Robertson, how are you? I'm good. It's snowy out there. It is. And by the way, if you're calling in to answer 
be patient because a bunch of lines are lighting up. So Tom is getting to you as fast as he can. But um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I want to get to some other stuff today because we said we were going to talk about this other stuff. But I, I, just before we get there, do you believe that certain franchises are cursed? Wide right? Twice. Wide right. This is wide right too. Yep. You've got Roman numerals now for wide right games. I, no, I don't. I think they have bad luck. Although trading Babe Ruth from Boston when I was just a young man, um, seemed to put a curse on them <laughs> for a while. Yeah. Steve Milton used to claim, my colleague at the spec used to claim that the Leafs lack of success is the curse of Frank Mahovlich because they traded him after 67 and they haven't won a Stanley Cup since. There's always something you can find. There's the, the, the Billy Goat curse for the Chicago Cubs that uh, finally was broken. And as you say, the curse of the Bambino and I don't know, they just, I just, I, I look at Buffalo and I think you, there, somebody did something to some deity because there's no other explanation for how you can lose a Stanley Cup on an illegal goal and you can lose Super Bowls wide right and you can have this happen and the Music City Miracle and the 13 seconds and you've been the better team almost every game you've played in these big games and you lose every one of them. Were they in three or four straight four. Super Bowls? Four. Four. And when the fourth one comes along, the money's all got to be on Buffalo because you're saying it can't happen four straight. Clearly it can. If you, if you ever, I don't know if you ever watch 30 for 30 shows I on didn't. TSN. I've seen a couple of them. Uh, there's one called the four falls of Buffalo. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a very, it's very well done because it's a lot with the guys who are on that team who many of them, this is the amazing thing. Many of them, after they were done, stuck around Buffalo and lived there. And, you know, Jim Kelly and, uh, Thurman Thomas is still in the area and Daryl Talley is still in the area. I mean, we, we went to a, my son and I went to a game a couple of years ago, nice early season game, beautiful outside. And we're walking around and my son's posing for photos with Thurman Thomas and Daryl Talley in the parking lot. They're just there tailgating with guys. Yeah. They're, it's a, it's an amazing market that deserves not to be cursed. And it's, it's not like it's packed with sunshine and warm weather in the wintertime. Now they, these guys may have places in Florida that they can go to, but it's a bit of a hotbed too. Harry Neal, I believe still yes. lives there. Daryl Sittler. Yep. Donnie Edwards, um, after he played with us, moved down there. Um, apparently the suburbs are very, very delightful. I've never seen them. I've only seen downtown, which kind of makes you wonder what the attraction to Buffalo is, but. I, I guess one of the things is it's close to Canada. Uh, yeah. And there are some lovely, lovely areas, uh, as I say, in the suburbs. I mean, like, like almost anywhere else you can find beautiful areas. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, uh, boy, that is a, uh, that is a, that is the most, I, I don't even mind saying over Toronto. That is the most tormented sports market on planet earth. There is no, there, there cannot dawn be another place that has been, that's had their heart ripped out as many times as Buffalo fans. I don't think the Bisons, the baseball team have ever won. I'll bet if you did some research on how many pro teams they've had over the years, including lacrosse. The bandits have won in, in lacrosse. Yes. Um, but somehow that's, and I don't want to, you know, I just wrote today about, you know, the Toronto rock and I mean, I don't want to dismiss lacrosse, but, but it's the, not the NFL. It's not the NHL. It, that's right. It just isn't. 
It just isn't. No, it's not. That's okay. And it's okay. But they used to have an NBA team. I don't know if they've ever won any championship of And they had a good NBA team. I mean, the Braves with Bob McAdoo played there yeah. back in the day. I mean, Hall of Famer. And yeah, it's, uh, and, and yeah, you know what? I mean, Toronto has TFC. Um, just well, TFC, yeah, they won a championship, but when they win a championship, is it the equal of the Leafs or the Raptors winning or the Jays? No, it just, it just isn't. So, you know, Buffalo, yeah, I, I mean, I feel badly. I, I really do. And, and the worst part about this is you just know, you go online, all it is, is mocking of Buffalo again today. And again, the worst part to me for them is. Every one of these famous games that they've lost, they've been the best team. Every single one of these games, they've been the best team and something or a couple things go wrong and they don't win. And you can start to feel it slip away too. When you're watching, you're going, this may not end well. Not quite Greg Norman at the Masters. (laughs) No. But yeah, but like dark feelings. And, And once you've been down this path a few times, you just expect it. Well, the good, the good news is the fans are used to it. Yeah. <laughs> if, that, if that's the good news, okay. <laughs> that's the only good news there that's is. the only good news. So, all right, let's, uh, I said we were going to move along and not uh, further torment those people who suffered through that yesterday <laughs> if they were fans. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, you and I were chatting about, I don't even know what we were chatting about. It was something to do with one of your teams in the past or something like that. It was like goaltending, that. I think, and David Schill's name come up. Maybe that's it. And we were talking about, uh, you know, you've, you've had some experiences running teams that, um, with stuff that has happened that most people would, first of all, there is a book in you. There is definitely <laughs> a book in you. There is stuff that has happened with your teams that I think, would you agree most people, if they knew, and some of it we couldn't even tell right now, but oh. that probably most of it we couldn't, we can't tell right oh, now. Can't tell the good stuff. No. There's stuff people would never believe happens. <laughs> yes, there is. I've, I've actually done some thinking about it since we had that conversation. Is that right? And um, quickly went on to something else and said, well, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that. This could be short. Um, yeah. And you're talking about the Brampers smoke and you know, the, all the senior teams have got their own. Well, let's go back. So for individual stories, for people who don't know the Brampford smoke, you in the summer of what year was that? 91. 91. You, as I understand it, have been trying to start a league for a while. You finally get enough owners in the mid to late summer of 91 to start the colonial hockey league, which became later the United hockey league and the international hockey league. But when you're starting a league. In July or August, most guys have signed, most guys who can play hockey have signed somewhere, haven't they? Yeah, but there's, I mean, there's so many hockey players. So, so to step back a bit, a fellow by the name of Skip Prost called me and he and a guy from Kingston were kicking around the idea of starting a pro league, um, Kingston and upstate New York, hence the colonial name. And they called me and I... (laughs) Maybe I said, well, you guys are doing this all wrong. And they said, well, enlighten me. So I said, look, here's how we should do this. So they put a team in St. Thomas instead of Kingston. And uh, Skip Pros put a team in Flint because it wasn't going to work down there. They wanted Brantford in. I said, we're not traveling that far. We can put a team in Brantford. I'm sure I'll get some investors together. We got Thunder Bay in with Gary Cook. and So really that's how it got kick-started and grew Particularly quickly, um, 
we uh, brought in SAG or um, um, Chatham, Chatham Wheels, and we sold a franchise to uh, Muskegon. Uh, Peter Ham stepped in and said, uh, I can sell franchises for you, and we're going to charge $150,000 U.S. The late Doug Terry, who was former mayor of St. Thomas, said, if you can get $150,000 U.S., you can have all the money. Well, he didn't get all the money, but he was on a commission. So we started adding teams. And the ability or the want from American people to buy and own sports franchises blew me away. Mm. You know, we went to Saginaw to make a deal to go in there, negotiated a deal where we got the place rent-free based on attendance. I mean, they're very creative in the U.S., and so there goes the league. But, you know, the the first year, uh, Thunder Bay won the championship. And we'll talk about Thunder Bay in a minute. And the second year, uh, we won the championship and beat out uh, St. Thomas Wildcats, who were coached by Peter Horichuk from the future Stone Nashville Lake. General or Nashville Predator and Toronto Maple Leaf head coach. Yes. Yep. And uh, lives in Florida. Scouts for New Jersey now, and does a lot of crazy things. So I was pretty happy with our record. I did some research today, and I don't research much. Um, in the three years I was there, our record was 101, 66, and 17. And, uh, the year I left, they, uh, were first time they were sub 500. So it was there a while. So we would have to travel to Thunder Bay. We would fly up and play two or three games up there. And I'll tell you, when you get a bunch of young athletes away from home, you kind of had to win the first game or you were going to be in a little bit of trouble. So I'll tell you, Kenny Mann was coaching the team with Kenny Grant. And we went into Thunder Bay, and they had a guy by the name of Bruce Ramsey and Mel Engelstadt. I mean, it wasn't slap shot, but everybody had a bunch of tough guys. It was pretty close. And, and, so for, and let me stop you for one more second, just so people know. This is where I actually met you. Yes. I was working in Brantford at the time. You had started this team. And yeah, you know what? It was, it may not have been slap shot, but it was at the beginning, it was as close to slap shot as you could get with it being a real league. Well. At times. It, and that's what drew fans. I'll, 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 di- I'll divert here. Second year of the league, they voted, they voted me as chairman of the board. And we all had to come up with a marketing idea. And Bob Myers was our commissioner. Yes. Former NHL ref, Copetown guy. Yeah. We were sitting in Fraser, Michigan. And the guy in Muskegon says, Don, what's your, what's your best idea to uh, put people in the rink? I said, well, we have a three-fight rule. If you're in three fights, you have to be kicked out. I'd suggest we raise that to five. <laughs> I thought Bob Myers was going to pass out. Well, yeah. so Bob Myers, uh, at the, it may have been the very first game in the league. It probably was. But your first game with Brantford, I'm sitting in the press box. In, in the old, before they fixed up the Brantford Civic Center. So the press box was about six feet long. And I'm sitting next to Bob Myers, who's there as the commissioner, first game ever. And it's, I don't know, early in the first period. And a player on the other team skates by the Brantford bench and does a two-handed baseball bat swing that cracks your coach. I think it was Gratton in the shoulder and knocks him off the bench. And I'm sitting beside Bob Myers, who just puts his head into his hands and goes, oh, what have I done? 
because now it's like, really, this is what this league is going to be. This is a, every night. This is what I'm going to have to deal with. And I talked Bobby into doing it. And I said, it'll just be, you know, it's, it's just minor pro hockey. It should be pretty easy. <laughs> I was hoping he actually might referee. He'd only retired two years before that. And I think after watching a couple of games, he decided he wouldn't. And he brought Ron McLean in. Ron McLean used to referee our games all the time. Like Hockey Night in Canada, Ron McLean? Yeah. Okay. That's where I got to know Ron rather well. And uh, so, yeah, we, I mean, there was, we were like five games in and I wasn't sure what to expect, but it didn't take long to figure it out. Um, Detroit had three or four big tough guys. Like we had some tough guys, but not, so I made a call to Garnet Ace, Niagara Falls. He's still a player agent. I, so I told him the situation I was in and I said, I need a couple guys that would fight an elephant and win. He said, I got just a kid for you. You ever heard of Andy Bezo? <laughs> I went, no. He said, he's about five foot eight. He'll fight anybody and he'll beat anybody up. I said, where is he? He said, he's here. I said, send him up tomorrow. So I did some checking because you know Bezo very well and some of his antics and some of the things you can't even talk about. Um, but he played um, 77 games for the Brantford Smoke and had 703 <laughs> minutes of penalties. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so, uh, two years ago when the Hamilton Bulldogs were in the Memorial Cup in St. John, I'm sitting in the press box at the St. John arena covering it. And I looked to my left and about three rows down and there's Andy Bezo because his kid was playing for the host team, for the St. John team. Very good player. His kid was. And yeah, Andy was, well, he was just one. There were a whole bunch of guys on your teams. Corey Banica. Yeah, there were guys. There were, it, it was, um, I think at one time you described it as a league of misfit toys, if I recall correctly. I think I may have used that quote. And uh, it was, it was, there was the, in the early days of, and again, people who have been to a Brantford Bulldogs game this year at the redone, nicely redone Brantford Civic Center will not understand this, but Back in those days, the penalty boxes were three-sided metal cages on wheels. So when a game came, they would roll them up against the boards so you could get into it from the ice when you opened the gate. But it was, anyway, two guys are fighting in one of your games and they're still jawing at each other when they get to the penalty box. And one of the guys stands up quickly to like bang a stick again and realizes the penalty box rolls away. So he just pushed it back. Well, now they are on their skates, on the concrete, in the concourse, fighting still. Yeah. And there are police coming in to try and break it up and fans are trying to get in on it. And, uh, yeah, it was, a. Uh, I tried to deter that as much as I could. Uh-huh. Um, you know what? That's, I would refer to that as old time hockey. <laughs> <laughs> I remember talking Pete Richards, guy who, uh, once co-owned or yeah, co-owned Kineski's yep. with Joel Hulsman and he played for you for a while. And I don't remember if it was with your team or somewhere else, but Pete told me the story one time where there was a fight on the ice that somehow he got in, even though he was the goalie and the guy on the other team ripped his mask off and began beating him with his own mask. <laughs> and then, and then I, as I recall the story, chucked it into the crowd <laughs> and <laughs> left Pete with no masks for the rest. So he couldn't play the rest of the way. That might have been with the Bramper smoke. And I believe it might have been in Thunder Bay. <clears throat> Peter um Peter was not scared to be involved in fisticuffs. Uh Ron Bernacki, our coach of the Real McCoys, uh can tell you some awful stories about him and Peter. And he got trained under uh, Bill LaForge, 
for the Hamilton Steelhawks. Thunder Bay, we went up and we had Bezel, and pound for pound, he was as tough as anybody I've ever had. I mean, he was small in stature, was absolutely fearless. So they had a tough guy by the name of Bruce Ramsey. Mel Ingolstadt was one of their tough guys. He went on to play in the NHL full careers. Uh, Ramsey coached a lot in the Central League. Um, so he said to Bezel, look at whatever you do, keep don't go near Ramsey for the first period. The building is packed, and that's what they're there for. So whatever you do, don't fight. Yeah, no problem. First face-off, they're out against each other. <laughs> which was the second face-off of the game. The gloves are off. Ramsey did rather well. So I said to Bees after the period, I said, we asked you not to do it. What are you going to do? He said, I'm going to make him do it again. They fought three times that night. Andy won the last one. But just, it was just, that was the way he was, and he wasn't going to let anybody think he was scared of him, and that's the way it was going to go. There was an interesting story. We had a reporter go up with us to Thunder Bay one night, and uh, it was in a restaurant after the, the goaltender had had a couple of drinks prior to going to the restaurant. And um, I thought the goalie was going to cry. The goalie will go unnamed, but he cornered you. Uh-huh. And had his, he had had a few beverages to ease his pain. And it was the only place that was open after a game in Thunder Bay. So I ended up in the same restaurant as the players. And this goalie who by now was well into his multiple beverage. Uh, and, and you were not. I was not. And he literally had his head on my shoulder and was weeping. And I'm thinking, I, they don't teach us in journalism school how to deal with goalies who are literally crying on your shoulder. But uh, they had, they, the, the crowd up there had not been kind to that goalie. No, they're chanting his name. Oh yeah. And he'd not had a good game. No. And it was, uh, but I, think that was I, I think I was chanting his name. That was a terrifying place though. Thunder Bay was a terrifying place. It was not, it was not for the faint of heart. So let, let me go back to Peter Richards talking about Pete, great guy. And, um, when we won the Colonial Cup in Brantford in a sold out building playing against St. Thomas Wildcats, Peter Richards finished the game when we won the Calder Cup. We'd signed Roly Melanson about, uh. Former Habs goalie and Leaf goalie. Yep. About, uh. Seven weeks before that, maybe six weeks before that, we needed a goaltender. I mean, you can't win without a good goalie. I mean, championships I've won, you generally have the better goalie. It makes makes coaches coaching easier. So I phoned Bill Waters because we were an affiliate of the Toronto Maple Leafs. All right. So the Leafs have the St. John's Maple well, Leafs. Well down the pecking order, mind you. Third. Like there was St. There was the Leafs. There was St. John's Maple Leafs. Mark Crawford and Joel Quenville were coaching there. And uh, so they would send players up and down. The year we won it, they had seven contracted players in Brantford mm. playing for us. But I went down to see uh, Wilbur, Bill Waters, and uh, just to shoot the breeze. And I said, I need a goalie. And uh, he said, well, I can't think of any. We sent you one. You don't like him. I said, well, you can't. He couldn't stop a table. <laughs> and uh, he said, well. You golf with Burns. He goes go see Pat, see what he's got for you. So I go down to the coach's room, go in and talking to Pat Burns. I golf with him and Pat LaForge and Chuck Seeger at the uh, the year he was introduced. I said I need a goalie. And when I get a goalie, we can win a championship. Pat picks up the phone and phones the Montreal Canadiens, uh, Serge Savard's secretary. I forget her name, and said, "Have you got Roly Melanson's home number? Because he's back in New Brunswick." Okay, so. Bernsey phones Rolly. He says, Don Robertson going to call you this afternoon and uh, you should maybe come out of retirement, try and win a championship. 
That's the real Coles Notebook version. Five days later, Roly Melanson was the Brantford Smoke, and he'd played for the Habs the year before. And uh, he hurt his knee uh, just into the third period of that game. And Pete, who hadn't played in a while because Roly was playing every game, went in and played well, and we won a championship. So there are a million little stories. One of the ones that um, – I want to talk about some alumni, too uh, – Rob Wilson, who played for us, uh, is now coaching the Peterborough Peets. Uh, Corey Banica is scout, scouting yep. for. Um, he's been around. He's probably done a bunch of teams. Yeah, he was with Buffalo, Arizona. St. Louis. He's uh, he's a real hockey guy and and a great guy from down Peterborough. Wade won a Memorial Cup with the Oshawa Generals, and he was tough too. He was scared of nobody. Mm. Greg Walters played for us. And went on the next year. He played three three straight years in the American League, and he now. Just left Owen Sound, but he's bouncing around coaching in the OHL. And Dean Morton played in that championship team. He was tough, too. Everybody was tough. Well, Dean Morton, who became a referee. It just retired just from retired the NHL. The NHL. Yeah, the NHL. I talked to him after we won it, and he said, I don't think I want to play. What do you think about a referee? He says, I got a chance to be a linesman in the OHL. I said, with your personality, you got a referee. Mm. So I talked to him three or four times in the next couple of weeks, and Way he went and got in, and he he was a good referee, and he had the personality to do it, right? Like he was a bit. Well, they hated him in Hamilton. I can tell you, every time when the Bulldogs were an AHL team and they announced Dean Morton as the ref, uh, he was not a popular guy. Did you not have Bruce Bell play for you? Yeah. Right now, he was just waking up from the Wendell Clark hit. <laughs> if you don't know who Bruce Bell is, one of the most famous hits that Wendell Clark ever threw, coming around the back of the net against St. Louis, a St. Louis defenseman, and Wendell caught him with his head down, shoulder pad to chin, and uh, looked like he killed him. That's Bruce Bell. Yeah. And it was about three or four years later that he was playing for you. It was my last year. He was, yeah, he well. <laughs> He wanted to play in a no contact league, and that, we, we, and he wasn't very big. I mean, he's not as big as I am, and um, he uh, it was interesting. Another one um, that was kind of fun, and you, you, you may remember this. Uh, every year I've had a team. We always have an April Fool's joke, and uh, in 1986, uh, we announced that Bobby Hall was coming out of retirement to play with his two sons for the Mots Clamatos, and I had done. All kinds of different things like that. One year we announced that Don Cherry uh, turned down an opportunity to coach Surreal McCoys. Um, but I went to the Brantford Expositor. You all right if I tell this? Yeah, yeah. I went to the Brantford Expositor and talked to the publisher and I said, I want to do an April Fool's thing. He said, what do you got in mind? So we went for lunch and I'm not a lunch guy. And I said, something kind of neat. And he says, well, what are you thinking? I says, well, I'm going to announce that Doug Gilmore is playing for the Brantford Smoke. And he looked at me and laughed. And that was Gilmore's big year. Right? He had a couple of big years, like 120 points. So he says, I said, but I want it to be front page news. He said, well, you get a picture of him in a Brantford smoke shirt, uh, jersey, and we'll do it. He said, matter of fact, you be in the picture to legitimize it. So you're not just sending it down. So I get a hold of Wilbur again, Bill Waters, and said, can I do this? He says, he just laughed. He said, sure, come on down. So he said, we're going to be practicing tomorrow at home. This is like, I only had two or three days to pull this off. So I have a jersey made up with Gilmore in the back, his number 93 with the assistant captain. So I go see Wilbur and he said, what do you got jersey for? I said, oh, I told you I was coming down to see Gilmore. Oh yeah. I said, you got that all set up, haven't you? He goes, yeah, sure I do. <laughs> he said, just go down with the players, come off the dressing room. If, he, if he's in the dressing room already, get Burns there to bring him out. So I'm standing there and he comes off the ice in the gardens. I said, Dougie, can I see you for a minute? He said, sure. 
So he comes over. I quickly tell him what's going on. I have a, I'm not a photographer. I have a 35 millimeter camera with me and nobody to take the picture. I go, well, how is this going to work? So I told him what we're doing. I said, he's, I'm in, I don't care. So he puts a jersey on to get an usher to take two or three pictures. I roar back, get the pictures developed, walk into the Brantford Expositor and give the guy the pictures. I forget the name of the publisher. You would know. Um, and so the next day or one or two days before, um, uh, April 1st, it was a front page story that Doug Gilmore was joining the Brantford Smoke, the play is play and the building sold out, basically sold out everybody in Brantford. Although the story was laced with, remember, this is April 1st, Robertson, the realtor sells swampland in Florida, suggesting that it might be a lark. And the people that called the day after the game complaining that Doug Gilmore did not play, it was almost not safe for me to go to the press box during the game because <laughs> they were looking for Gilmore. At one point, you guys had, you, there weren't at one time a whole lot of nice hotels in Thunder Bay. You guys were staying in one of them near the airport on one trip until you weren't. What happened? It was the Airlane Hotel, and we'd been staying there with senior teams and everything else since the 80s because it was right beside the airport, Airlane Hotel, right? And to say the least, I had had teams there that there were a lot of shenanigans that went on, um, many of which can't even be thought about. Most of which. Repeated. <laughs> and um, after the previous trip, they asked us just not to come back. And we ended up, you know— hotel, motel across the street that was part Chinese restaurant. And for, it was the last time I was in Thunder Bay with a hockey team. And you couldn't destroy that place, I'll tell you. Well, but you had to, the guys had to carry their equipment through the restaurant to get yes. to this hallway that was painted pink to get to the rooms. It was, yeah. uh, it was a sight. It was like a barracks or closer to a jail. I mean, it was not very palatial and... Yeah, that was the only place in town that would take us at that point. So it was, now Thunder Bay was something else. I mean, I'm, all, I'm not going to talk about the, some of the senior escapades up there, but taking the Matsukamatos up there was of similar interest. Um, and uh, those stories will remain. Again, we can't even tell. I can't even tell you the good stories. I could, I mean, this is radio. We got to clean it up. I mean, if there was somebody wanted to go and meet and have a couple of beers and a plate of wings, I mean, some of the stories, you, I would tell them and you wouldn't believe me. And uh, I was thinking, I mentioned just briefly, in that short period of time where you followed the Brantford smoke, I assure almost anyone that's listening that you saw more escapades in that brief encounter than you have seen in the rest of your Oh, I learned more about life and not necessarily <laughs> good things, yeah. but I mean, you realize that when Nancy Dowd wrote Slapshot and she was the sister of Ned Dowd, who actually played or uh, acted in that movie, he be, he, in that movie, he was a real minor league hockey player yep. and he played Ogie Oglethorpe in the movie. The guy that, the, the man whose stories led to the movie was the guy who played Ogie Oglethorpe. Anyway. And where was he from? Thunder. Was Bay. he from Thunder Bay? Yeah, there you go. Still lives there, I think. Well, I, so I had on this show years ago, I had Goldie Goldthorpe, who was the inspiration for Ogie Oglethorpe. He and, played for the Thunder Bay Twin Senior Hockey up there. Well, so when he was on, just to tell you how these stories are real, I, I had a list in front of me. And I mean, Goldie Goldthorpe was a legend. He was. 
and, and his voice was, I mean, his voice was gone. Like it was just, anyway, and I'm saying, okay, I got to go through some of these things that I've heard about you. Can you just tell me if these are really true? You were released from jail on bail to play a game. True. You were stabbed three times. You were shot twice. You know, like, I don't even remember all the, like I'm, some of this stuff may not be, but it, no matter how ludicrous I came out with something, it was all true. It was all true. And you wonder how, you know, Slapshot, and I hope everyone has seen Slapshot by now, but it, it, it is not, it is not far off. Uh, Kenny Grattan, uh, um, bless his soul, he's gone now. And Kenny Mann, both played in that era. And with senior teams, we used to throw Slapshot on and they'd be asking, well, this isn't real. This isn't real. He said, well, they didn't even put the good stuff in. Yeah, it's all true. Like that's the way minor pro hockey was played. I mean, you drop the puck, puck and there'd be a five line, line, uh, five man brawl, line brawls. So we cleaned it up a lot in the colonial league. I mean, we didn't have line brawls all the time, but people, I'm telling you, people used to like watching hockey fights. Oh yeah. Don Shorey sold a couple slap, uh, what are they called? The uh, Rock'em Sock'em, Sock'em. Uh, videotapes, uh, and Bruce Bell and Wendell Clark were in every one of them. But there was, uh, there was, we, uh, we, we went to Flint one night, we played Flint and Peter Horchuk was coaching in Flint and Donnie Waddell was there because he'd been the GM. I think he's still GM in Carolina now. Hockey guys hang around, mm. Rick Dudley and all that stuff, right? I mean, that's, they, they're hockey lipers, those guys. And we were going to stay overnight in Flint. I hadn't booked anything because I wasn't sure if we'd stay in Flint. And I said to Peter, I says, I'm going to take the boys for a, a beer and a sandwich, which always made me scared. Um, he said, don't stay in town. I said, really? He says, there's, there's the good parts of Flint and the safe parts of Flint are much smaller than the large parts. So he phoned the one hotel he thought we should stay at and there was no room. So we headed off to Muskegon and I forget where we stayed. I think we went right to Muskegon, but it was crazy. He says, and, and you're the away team. And if some of the fans see you there, he said, it's just, it, you'll be in trouble. And that's crazy. Right. When you think back of it now, but. I heeded Peter's advice and I, I still talk to Peter once in a while. He's a great guy. There was, uh, I, I'm not going to mention a name because, uh, there was a, a player on your team. So, uh, when I was with the team one time somewhere, um, I was leaving my room to go to wherever. And one of your players was late getting to the bus and another player had to come and knock on his door, happened to be the door right across the hall from me. And when the door opened, it was not your player who answered the door. <laughs> and it was, that guy was, he would have been in his twenties at this point. Uh, the person who answered the door wrapped in nothing but a towel looked like his grandmother. <laughs> and the, the player who had knocked on the door to try and get him down to the bus, didn't even say anything, just burst out laughing and ran to the bus <laughs> that this was this young hockey player's company for the evening. I guess it had been last call and, uh, it was, uh, and I, I, I was a very young man at the time and I just looked and I went, Oh, <laughs> Oh, I, uh, I learned very quickly when we were on the road that the best place for me was generally two or three floors away from the players. I mean, not that I'd have been involved in shenanigans like that, but I was best off not knowing. Yes. And hoping 
But getting everybody to the bus when we left some cities and to airplanes was sometimes a challenge and you can't have an airplane wait for a guy that's late. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, what did I say? There's a book in here somewhere for you <laughs> that, uh, it would, it would come with a warning. It would come with a warning and it would come with a, a, a thing that, uh, points out that, uh, names may have been changed to protect the <laughs> innocent or guilty. Including but mine. It could, yeah, that's right. It would be written by Ron, you know. You can ghostwrite it. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, um, I don't, I, I, I try not to use those words. Ghost? Be a, no, no. They're the ones that would be required to write this book. There's a lot of them. <laughs> The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.